Across the country, protesters have taken to the streets for the last week. They have marched, confronted riot police, and chanted the name of the man whose death sparked these protests. Say his name! George Floyd! Say his name! George Floyd! These scenes are reminiscent of past protests, like those for Michael Brown, Freddie Gray, and Eric Garner. But this time, something is different. These protests are taking place in the middle of a pandemic that has put America's long-standing racial disparities in sharp relief. Black people are dying of COVID-19 at a disproportionate rate, and Black unemployment climbed to 16.7% in April. Protesters say they're out in the streets for reasons that go beyond what happened last week in Minneapolis. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Kate Limelaw. It's Tuesday, June 2nd. Coming up on the show, why the killing of George Floyd has led to the biggest wave of protests in decades. Don't you wish your life came with a warning app? That dog does not want to be petted. <laughs> well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but prediabetes does. Take the one-minute test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. Protests in Minneapolis started after George Floyd was killed last week. Videos of the scene show him begging for air while under the knee of a city police officer. The footage sparked outrage. Carl Lobley, a 25-year-old who joined in the protests, remembers the first time he saw the video of Floyd's death. Why didn't that man get off of it? Why didn't no one help? And I mean, it sucks to say I I knew the answer right after I thought it, which made me more frustrated, felt powerless. Rage is an understatement. I don't know if there's anything I can think of that is a better word, but angry, angry, and just really disappointed in our police officers. I mean, I just couldn't believe that no one was able to go and try to save that man. No one saw that what was happening as far as the officers go. No one thought that that was overly excessive. They probably would even argue their point. So, I mean, I knew I was just, I was livid. Can you describe that anger? What What's at its root? To be honest, it's the sense that I know that I'm walking around constantly and there's barriers that I can't even physically see that are affecting me. And that's just the fact. Sitting here in a constant state of, am I, am I doing the right thing? And constantly feeling like I'm not enough at all moments because when I go to these interviews and they see my dreadlocks, they're like, oh, your name's Carl Lobley? I thought you were a white person. Not that they say it. I could just see it in their mannerisms. They'd be like, you Carl Lobley? Yeah, I'm, that's me. And no, I'm not a horrible person. But it sucks to have to walk in with an image at all. And I just don't know why we have to go through these things. So I'm always in a state of not confusion, but just the, not disappointment. It's rage. I'm pissed. Like, it's hard to be a black man. I'm not going to lie. Carl says that for him, that feeling of anger and frustration had been intensifying over the past couple of months. Unemployment rates have jumped in Minnesota since the pandemic hit. Employers are laying off workers, not hiring them. And Carl 
has been feeling that economic pain. I had a uh, DWI not too long ago, so I just ended up getting out of jail maybe three days before they had started the whole government shutdown thing. I didn't have a job during that moment. So when I was applying for jobs and everything was starting to shut down, it was a bleak moment for me personally. I'm homeless currently, so like I was trying to figure this out. You know, people are out here really trying to hit the reset button, but the system keeps you in check as far as like we know your track sheet. Yeah, you can try to change, but we know your track sheet. They're going to treat you the same. Carl was already struggling and stressed. And when he saw the video of George Floyd, it added to that frustration. So he decided to join the protests, to take action against what he sees as an unjust and racist police system. The world needs to know that this is happening. I mean, it's one thing for us in our small communities to bow our heads and be sad about it, but this impacts a lot more people. So, I mean, everybody who's out there, I feel, is really expressing the voice of everyone. This can't keep happening. You can't keep killing us. I don't believe in, you know, the police anymore. I'm sorry. Like, yeah, reform is possible, and that's a cool thing to eventually get to, but we can't wait around for that. Carl says on the first day he joined the protest last week, things seemed calm. It was peaceful. People were upset. Definitely had some powerful speakers. It was like a solidarity. We knew what we were there for. But then they marched up toward the target and it went completely haywire. It was no more organized thought solidarity. It was riled anger, frustration, pent-up aggression. When I got there, they were all going through the back door and, I mean, utter chaos. All of the things were on the floor. Looting, to me, seems like you're going in to steal specific things or, you know, there was things stolen, but it didn't seem like that was the overarching idea. It was just to break and destroy the target to me. I mean, they were just pushing the racks over and busting open the windows to the doors. When the police that came and made their presence felt, they we even went worse. You know what I mean? That wasn't the time to be trying to display a show of force. Like, it was just a whole bunch of people from a whole bunch of different areas expressing anger. What were you doing? My mom raised me better than that. I think everything comes with consequences. I'm like, bro, come on, let's leave, get in the car, we're done with this. Because that's not something we see every day here. With multiple fires, people being arrested, big, huge crowds. I think people were overtaken by their emotions, the sadness, the anger, and then the burning and just the visual of that. You know what I mean? Because you feel that. That's the fire that I feel. When I saw that fire over by the uh, Target, it was a huge fire. And I'm like, that is exactly what is in the chest of all these people, bro. And it's destructive. It's killing. It's burning everything. It was like that. That kind of fire that sparked in Carl has spread. Protests started in Minneapolis, but have picked up across the nation. I mean, we're seeing it in all different parts of the country, in large communities, in small communities. It really is more widespread than perhaps a single protest has ever been. Our colleague, Elizabeth Findell, has been covering some of the protests in smaller and mid-sized cities. 
We talked to people in areas that usually don't see these kinds of things. Like Raleigh, North Carolina, Lubbock, Texas, Santa Rosa, California, and Omaha, Nebraska. Over the past week, protesters in Omaha, Nebraska's biggest city, have taken to the streets on several nights. And there have been protests there that have gotten violent. The uh, former police chief said that there hasn't been unrest like this there in uh, at least half a century. And then it actually escalated to, on Saturday night, a 22-year-old black man was shot and killed by a local bar owner. The Douglas County attorney said that the shooting was in self-defense and that they would not be filing charges against the bar owner. And protests have continued to go on there, and there's been a high level of frustration. Why do you think these protests have become so widespread across the country? It's a fair number of things. There's been obviously a flashpoint of George Floyd's death, and then that comes amid this global pandemic. People have been stuck at home for a very long time. There's already a heightened frustration about a lot of things. So someone in the story called it the perfect cocktail for anger. And the ingredients in this cocktail of anger go back decades. Quite often, police brutality, particularly of the murderous variety, will be the spark that ignites the powder keg. But the powder keg is something that's more historical. That's after the break. Don't you wish your life came with a warning app? That dog does not want to be petted. Well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but prediabetes does. Take the one-minute test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. Welcome back. George Floyd's death tapped into a deep well of anger, one that's been building for a very long time. We talked about the relationship between police brutality and protest movements with Dr. Samuel Kelton Roberts, a professor at Columbia University who studies African-American history and public health. It's been years, really, of not just police abuse, but also quite often just intense structural inequality of deepening disparities in health, in wealth, in income, in education. You know, during the Depression, World War II era and afterwards, you had black communities in competition with white communities, immigrant white, native-born white, etc., for jobs and for housing, for political representation, for basic services. Samuel says it's this combination— police brutality layered on top of structural inequities that have touched off some of the biggest protests in recent history. What you see in Minneapolis, what we saw in Ferguson, what we saw in Baltimore, what we saw Watts in the 1960s, Harlem in the 1960s, all of these were incidents where things had just hit a boiling point, and it was a matter of time. If things continue the way they are, this is what you get. This moment, however, is different. We're in the middle of a global pandemic. 
and a massive economic downturn that it has caused. How has that changed the dynamics of this moment in terms of these protests? COVID-19 has everything and nothing to do with it. The nothing part is police brutality. However, I think it had everything to do with COVID-19 in the sense that this, the pandemic, and by the way, not just the pandemic itself, our response to it has served as an accelerant to whatever spark might have hit this powder keg. The pandemic accelerated us toward this moment, Samuel says, because it's hit Black communities around the country harder. In states that report racial data, Black people make up about one-third of the total deaths from COVID-19. But they only make up 13% of the total population in those states. What both the uprising and the inequalities of in mortality, morbidity in COVID-19 both show the deep fundamental causes and fundamental roots of structural racism, structural violence, and inequities that we have in this country. Historically, if you look at virtually any health condition, like really investigate it, you will learn as much about how we've organized society at that historical moment as you might learn about the epidemiology of the disease itself. His research shows that there have been many public health emergencies that have had an unequal toll on Black people. For example, another respiratory disease that was one of the top killers in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. That was pulmonary tuberculosis. This is before the era of antibiotics, and there was no real treatment for it. It was only prevention, and the best prevention for it was fresh air, adequate housing with good ventilation, etc. And that was not available. Sounds familiar. It sounds very familiar. Tenement regulations, for example, originate in tuberculosis control. Crowding regulations originate in tuberculosis control. In the era of tuberculosis, what you had was a very interesting and kind of almost a distinctly American way of doing race politics, which was you would have black leaders and a few liberal white ones who would both argue that the common phrase was germs know no color line. And using the idea that we need to attend to the health needs of black populations, particularly because if we don't, we meaning white people, if we don't, then they will end up infecting us anyway, as our domestic servants, as our factory workers, as food processors, et cetera, et cetera. Samuel sees a parallel in this pandemic. We need to be careful about how we do politics in the era of COVID-19 because you see that a lot as well. People appealing to considerations of black and brown and immigrant communities because they're the ones who deliver our food from you know, Uber Eats or Seamless or there are cab drivers. In a lot of ways, it's a story of a lesson unlearned or not ever learned. For years, 
The message of the Black Lives Matter movement has been that Black lives are often considered disposable in America. It's a message that's come through loud and clear in these protests. And, Samuel says, in this pandemic, too. COVID-19 is just one more reminder of that. Being Black can be bad for your health. And that your life doesn't matter. So it's very much connected. I don't know if there's a causal relationship from pandemic to today's uprising, but there certainly is one from our longer history of structural violence, literal violence, and just overall inequality in so many ways that produced both of these moments as we are experiencing them. And I think you put all that together and there are a lot of people who have just said, you know, this is enough. This is really, this is too much. Enough already. And in the past, have violent protests like these resulted in political change? Yes. I know people don't want to believe that, but you have to remember that these don't come out of nowhere. Quite often, an uprising, particularly one of this scale, is a collective expression of enough is enough and time is up, so to speak. I think at a certain point, people say the system does not work. Some of the most momentous changes, unfortunately, have come after national uprisings like this. That's all for today, Tuesday, June 2nd. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. Special thanks to Aaron Aylworth, Ariane Campo-Flores, and Val Borline for their reporting on this story. Additional audio from Peep Hassan via Storyful. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.